Hi, I'm Emma Gannon and you're listening to Walks of Art. You may have heard my podcast, Control-Alt-Delete, but today I'm very excited to be guest hosting this episode for the Tate, here in St Ives. It's a coastal town in the far west of Cornwall and home to modern art, abstraction, pottery, boats, beaches and a boho arts community and much more. I was born and bred in Devon and we used to go on family holidays to Cornwall and it's always had such a special place in my heart. We are on the train from St Earth to St Ives and I don't know much about the art history of Cornwall but I'm really excited to find out today. Painters have been coming here since Victorian times, attracted by the light and the scenery. From the 1920s right through to the mid-20th century and beyond, the town became a home to a league of maverick modern artists who showed us new ways of looking at the world. Alfred Wallace, Barbara Hepworth, Bernard Leach, Ben Nicholson, Patrick Heron and Sandra Blow all lived and worked here. Even the dear departed David Bowie dashed off a painting during a visit here in the early 90s. Oh, it looks amazing. So we're at Porthminster Beach, which is right next to the station, and the view is incredible. There's a few people milling about on the beach. And in the far distance, you can see God Reavy Lighthouse, which is apparently the inspiration behind To the Lighthouse by the amazing Virginia Woolf. But what brought all these single-minded people to this seemingly far-flung place? One of those who arrived by train was the artist Terry Frost, who moved with his family here at the end of the Second World War. His son, Anthony, is also an artist and he still lives nearby. He's waiting for me at the harbour side and I can't wait to meet him. Yeah. Hi, nice to meet you. So thank you, Anthony, for joining us on the podcast to talk about St Ives and also your dad. Terry Frost, who is going to have a permanent home in the Tate yes. very soon. So you're the perfect person to ask about um, all of this, thing as you are an artist yourself as well. That's true. Um, Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, so why do you think so many artists came to St Ives over the years? What do you think attracted them to this place specifically? One of the reasons they always talk about is the light. It's almost like an island, St Ives, and it's surrounded by 80% water, so it has this incredible reflection, uh, you know, off the granite and off the sea. But, I mean, one of the main thing, reasons, I think, was the, the cheap rents and the fishermen's lofts that they could turn into studios. As a commando in the Second World War, Dab got captured in Crete, where he, you know, was uh, marched to Bavaria, where he was uh, a prisoner of war for, the, you know, for four years. And so when he got to Stalag 383, one of the first people he met was dear old Adrian Heath, who ran an art class. And Adrian had a studio down here before he became a prisoner of war and said to me, old man, you know, Terry, go forth, paint, go to St Ives, because that's where it's happening. We've just moved round the corner from the harbour and perched outside a very familiar house to you. 12 Key Street, my old house. Eight of us lived in here, you know, my mum and dad and six of us, but... There wasn't enough room for us all to be in at one at a time. So if one came in, and one went out and went on the beach, sort of thing. You know? And it's one for in, sale. One yeah, one in, one out. And it's for sale now. I can't believe my old cottage. So 
post Second World War, when your dad came here and, and started to find his tribe of fellow artists, there's a lot uh, written about his look, like the beatnik look. Were people slightly ashamed of him taking on this look? His mom was definitely ashamed of him because he'd grown a beard and was wearing a berry and had the jeans on with turn-ups and sandals. So, I love that look. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, go to Dalston now. Yeah. <laughs> So much like kind of more modern creatives now, uh, to do the, the work that you love, sometimes you have to do other jobs to kind of support yourself. Is that the case for your dad when he was starting out? He, yes, certainly, because when he uh, first came down here, we became a, a waiter. And my mum worked in B&Bs and hotels, sort of changing the beds and all that sort of thing. Of course, he worked for Barbara Hepworth. So you had these famous St. Ives artists, or to-be famous mm. St. Ives artists, but they were all working for the Barbara Hepworth, you know, mm. as assistants to her. So by this time, your, your dad was established as an artist, recognised for his work. I've got one of the pictures up on the Tate website, Green, Black and White Movement, and this is, this is well known, this piece, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, painted in 1951 when I was born. It's definitely to do with the harbour, St Ives Harbour, the fishing boats and the sea, and to do with movement as well, sort of creating the rocking movement of the boats in the harbour. But this was very important because Dad, when he came down here, sort of linked up with... Uh, artists were very, you know, they were wonderful in that sense that they were all, all wanted to meet each other, discuss, mm -hmm. talk, and uh, it was the artist, Peter Lanyon, who would uh, take him out into the landscape and get him to roll in the landscape and look mm -hmm. at the sky and try and get uh, a time and movement into a painting, which was like... A new thing. So here I've got up the black and white movement yes. painting. 1952, yes. again, so by this time I'm a year old. Being an artist myself, I know that sometimes paintings you think are finished are not. And I know in this case that Dad actually cut a piece, physically sawed a piece of that painting off to make it a better composition. And this piece ended up on the back of a bookcase we had. And this bookcase ended up eventually ended up with the son of my, my parents' great friends on their wall, taken off the back of the bookshop, framed up, looks beautiful. So the Tate have uh, sort of, uh, what, uh, seven-eighths of it, and one-eighth is on a wall in Banbury, Oxfordshire. It's fantastic. <laughs> and I think that's a, you know... Yeah, but it, that's like self-constraint, isn't it? Knowing when to stop, when to start, it's a, when it, not to ruin it. <laughs> I always think that Patrick Heron had a nice idea. When you get to, you know, when you get to the edge, just stop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when did you know that your dad was such a recognised painter? I think I knew my dad was doing it up to something when he went to America. He came back from America, I should say, with presents for us here. And I can remember standing in the street over there with an American cowboy hat on that my dad had brought back from me from going over to Texas. And then he sort of won the world prize and showed at the Bertha Schaefer Gallery in New York. One of St Ives' best-known painters was actually an amateur by the name of Alfred Wallace. His former home is just a short walk from where Terry Frost and his family lived. Now I'm standing outside of his house on Back Road West. He's what you'd call a bit of a late starter. In his youth, he was a cabin boy, but once back on the shore, he opened up a boat maintenance shop and worked as a rag-and-bone man, buying old clothes and household junk to sell them on. He was also reputedly the first person to sell ice cream here. I wonder if they had my favourite, which was mint chocolate chip, which is pretty much all I ate. It was only after his wife died in 1922 that he started painting, because he was lonely. 
Chris Stevens is the director of the Holborn Museum in Bath. He knows more about British modern art than most people, including me. And he's going to tell the story of Mr Wallace and his paintings. They're painted in a style which I suppose you'd say is childlike. It's you know, what at the time was called naive because he was untutored. I think he had such an urge to paint and so little money, he painted on almost anything that came to hand. So many of the pictures are on the inside of cornflake packets or, or cardboard boxes that he would get from the corner shop. Um, there's a whole series painted on the plywood tops of tea chests and they're easily recognised because they have the nail holes around the edges. Because of that, they also tend to be very sort of odd shapes, you know, sort of rounded corners and, and wobbly edges because, you know, they were just cut out from boxes. He didn't follow the traditional rules of perspectives, that he painted a place more as he felt it and experienced it than as, you know, as it might be seen in conventional paintings. So, you know, his views of St Ives Bay include the island in St Ives, Godrevi Lighthouse on the, on the far eastern end of the bay, and the distances between those has got much more to do with the experience and the importance of the places than it has about real distances. So, you know, where not much happens in the landscape for a sailor, then um, he doesn't include that. I've got one of his paintings up on my phone called Houses at St Ives, and it was painted in 1928. To me, it looks really modern, and it's got kind of a Picasso sort of edge to it. It's, it's quite slanty, and the perspective is all different, and you've got the same steps going up to the houses, you've got the same sort of hills and the same buildings, really, and you can definitely tell that this was exactly painted right here. Alfred Wallace's failure to observe the rules of modern art meant that no-one took him seriously as an artist. That's until two established proper artists, Ben Nicholson and Christopher Wood, were passing this very cottage and through the open door saw this eccentric loner at work on his paintings. The thing that was attractive about him to Ben Nicholson and Christopher Wood and others was that what they saw as a kind of authenticity, that this was a sincere expression, uh, not one that sort of filtered through academic rules. And Wallace would send him and some of his friends in London bundles of paintings and they would make a selection of those and then send him a postal order or a cheque for those that they'd kept. And uh, Nicholson even actually sort of tried to sort of tutor Wallace a bit. He sent him books on sailing ships and also a book on the French naive painter Henri Rousseau. And there's a lovely uh, letter from Wallace to Nicholson saying that I like the book, but he doesn't do boats. Wallace became quite widely known in the 1930s. Nicholson arranged for his work to be included in sort of avant-garde exhibitions in London. He gave Wallace paintings to the Tate in London and even to the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And Wallace's letters to Nicholson are very sort of revealing. There's a rather awful moment when he almost says, you know, he feels under pressure to keep making these paintings. Now he's got people who appreciate them. But he's saying that he's painting so much it's making him ill and he might have to stop. Um, there was later quite a controversy during the Second World War. He moved to the poorhouse in Madron near Penzance when he had had this sort of patronage amongst these sort of, you know, quite well-off and, and famous artists. But the story is also told that you know, Nicholson and others were visiting him in the poorhouse and found that he was, despite his sort of um, decrepitude, was still quite happy and they were taking him um, crayons and paper so he could continue making his pictures till the very end. I've just climbed the hill up to Barnoon Cemetery where Alfred Wallace's grave is and 
the local council ended up burning Alfred Wallace's belongings on Porthmere Beach, which is what I'm looking at right now. I can see some surfers in there quite far out, and also the Tate St Ives is right in front of me as well. Ben Nicholson, who remained a friend until Alfred's death, did manage to save some of his paintings, and he and the artist Adrian Stokes wanted to ensure that Alfred didn't have a pauper's grave. So the grave was designed by Bernard Leach, and on it it says artist and mariner, and it's got a lighthouse on it, and uh, it's quite symbolic how there's someone going into the lighthouse. Perhaps it's Alfred Wallace finally resting in peace. Bernard Leach was working in St Ives from the 1920s onwards. The Leach Pottery, half a mile from here at Higher Stenwick, is one of the most respected, influential studio potteries in the world. Here's Chris Stevens again. Bernard Leach was born in Hong Kong and um, after studying at art school in, in London, uh, travelled to Japan and he was part of a revival of a potting tradition in Japan. Leach came back from Japan with a potter he'd met there, Shoji Hamada, and it was together that they built the Leach pottery in St Ives. Leach was part of this wider craft revival, which Nicholson and Wood were also part of, and, and you know, and that's Wallace was part of that too, seeking a sort of reconnection with something um, pre-industrial, both ancient, naive, and therefore more real, more authentic, more sincere. Leach's work references very clearly both traditional English and traditional Oriental forms. But he might combine that with a motif from Japan, like a sort of a, a well or a walking pilgrim. And in the same way, Leach always wanted his pottery to be used. The cups were for drinking tea or beer. And to that end, actually, later he made what became called standard ware, which was a range of cups and bowls and pottery which was sold in you know in posh shops in London to demonstrate that you could have everyday china which didn't have to be produced in a factory and still you see their influence um, you know if you go to around St Ives today you'll see pottery made in the leech tradition most of the major British potters of the 20th century worked the leech pottery, people like Michael Cardew and Catherine Pladel, Bouverie and so on. And so his influence was enormous. In the 1950s, you know, he was very clearly the most famous potter in the world. Even David Bowie himself paid a visit to the leech pottery in 1993. And while he was here, he painted an image of his wife Iman in the pottery. It's called Little Stranger, Metal Hearth and the Black Coat. Bowie was quite a fan of the modern artists associated with St Ives, and he had a number of their works in his own personal collection, including Bernard Leach. Not surprisingly, the pubs of St Ives were popular meeting places where full and frank discussions about art took place over a few pints. The art historian Jeannie Sinclair is our go-to woman on this important part of St Ives' life. Oh, hi, Hi, nice to meet you. So we're sat here in the sloop with our pints. Is this somewhere where the artists would come and hang out? Absolutely. It's a kind of a place where the community comes together and there's it often seen as a divide between the idea of artists and locals. It's interesting that when you think about the modern world, pubs used to be a place where you would have to go there to catch up with people. 
to like come to the pub and actually have debates. We yeah. probably have them on Twitter now. Certainly after the Second World War, people started to come here, different kinds of artists who are more working class or who weren't, didn't come from money. A lot of the artists identified with the fishermen as being working class as well, and that was really important. I think before the Second World War, it was quite interesting when you read people's uh, diaries talking about the idea of being free from class norms. And that sort of look described as beatnik, almost like hipster type. Did people judge them or make fun of them or...? It was astounding, the kind of reaction that it actually got at the time. And even uh, Alan Wicker made a TV programme about it and about beatniks in Newquay and the kinds of young people that were coming to places like St Ives and other parts of Cornwall were mostly middle-class, very young art students, and they were attracted to the idea of being um, a beat or a beatnik um, after the kind of Jack Kerouac on the road, and so it's all started to happen in the late 1950s, early to late 1950s. So people used to come down and sleep on the beaches, and they just wanted to be artists, musicians and writers. There's lots of rumours about the beatnik wall, and uh, we're actually right by it now. There was a wall opposite the sloop where beatniks would congregate, and there were rumours that people would fornicate on this wall, and so there were closed town council meetings um, to discuss the demolition of the wall, and eventually they did demolish the wall, simply so that people couldn't sit on it or lie around on it and generally make a nuisance of themselves. I'm so fascinated by that um, idea of, like, generational divides and how you, every single generation, grows up thinking, I won't judge young people, and I get scared that maybe one day I'm going to be that person. (laughs) And now it's baby boomers being annoyed with young people using Snapchat. Yeah, exactly. the the new one. The people in the town used to say that they were the great unwashed, they had long hair, they dressed differently, they were gender ambiguous. And there's a Giles cartoon from The Sloop that you can see you've got a man wearing a cravat and holding a glass of wine, and then there's a woman wearing trousers and holding a pint. The gender stereotypes are being subverted slightly. I think there is a really interesting thing about St Ives where uh, women in particular have feel that they have the freedom to kind of express their gender in a non-typical way. Mm. And it's interesting that Barbara Hepworth, just because she wears jeans and has a pint has a pint in her hand, people must have enjoyed looking up to her in a way, being like, well, she's doing really well and she's not conforming to gender stereotypes. She was married to Ben Nicholson, mm-hmm. and that's quite like a feminist move for her to not just take his surname. She was a very modern woman... And I think that's part of the interesting thing about St Ives is that it's often seen as a place of refuge where you can create a new kind of modernity, a new kind of society. So I'm really excited to check out Barbara Hepworth's studio. Are you Mm going to show me around? Absolutely. (laughs) So just before we head up to the Barbara Hepworth Gardens, I'm going to see if this ice cream shop has my favourite before we go. It'd be rude not to. Hi, can I just have one scoop of mint chocolate chip ice cream, please? Thank you. (laughs) So here we are at Barnoon Hill, and this is the Barbara Hepworth Museum and Sculpture Garden. Amazing, so Barnoon is the same name as the cemetery? That's right, yes. So this is the garden. 
pubs are huge. We have just walked up the high street from the Sloop pub, so about a five-minute walk, and we have arrived in the gardens uh, showcasing Barbara Hepworth's amazing work. And she was quite well-known before she moved here, wasn't she? She was the most successful artist in Britain, one of the most well-known at one point, and part of them being in St Ives was something that brought other artists here, so people like Nam Garbo, who's another famous constructivist Russian artist. It's very tranquil and her pieces are sort of poking up behind the bamboo and the plants and all of the trees and, yeah, it's, it's incredible. Do you have a favourite one, Jeannie? This is Four Square Walk Through, which is made up of four enormous bronze square panels with circles in them. And one of the things that I really like about this one is that as its name describes, walk through. People can walk through it. Children can kind of play around it. It, it sort of looks like a giant play area thing. Yeah. yeah. And that was the kind of tactility and being able to touch the sculptures and the kind of movement and the feel of things were things that were really important to Hepworth. She didn't feel that they were static. She complained once that critics, of course, wouldn't understand her work because they just stood still in front of them. Mm and they didn't move around them, so they were very much dynamic objects for her. Which I like I think that. Is interesting. It's like she wanted people to use it, or at least it's going to be like a lived-in piece of art. It's not just going to be like behind closed doors. She had really strongly held principles and ideas about um, humanity. Chris Stevens. Hepworth was part of a generation of artists whose work was fundamentally shaped by the First World War, and it very much stood for the belief in an ideal world of cooperation and harmony, and that was consciously developed in opposition to the rise of fascism and Nazism in Europe. So the descent into war at the end of the 30s and the horrors of the Holocaust fundamentally undermined what those artists had believed in and what they were seeking. And you see, I think, in Hepworth and in several others a kind of re-engagement with nature and with landscape as a riposte, I think, to the sort of insecurities of recent times. So sculptures like Pelagos, or there's one even called Landscape Sculpture, which the forms of which she talks about in terms of her standing in the landscape and feeling it sort of um, almost embrace her in a sort of protective hug, a calming and protective. Hepworth and Nicholson helped nurture a new generation of artists, Patrick Heron, Terry Frost and Peter Lanyon. Many argue that it was they who influenced the American modernists of the 1950s with a parallel exchange in ideas between the Big Apple and St Ives. They became the leading painters of the 1950s, um, not just in London but internationally, and St Ives became a place known on the international scene. So you see you know, numerous um, dealers, not just from London but also from New York, visiting St Ives, even thinking about buying houses in St Ives, and artists too, you know, famously Mark Rothko, maybe the greatest American painter of the second half of the 20th century, visited St Ives and stayed with Peter Lanyon in Carbis Bay and they drove around the countryside looking for an old Methodist chapel where Rothko might put his murals that are now in the Tate in London. So it was a place that was known internationally. Those British St Ives artists were showing in New York and New York artists were looking to see what was going on in Cornwall. So there was a moment there when they were very much part of a kind of international phenomenon. 
The continuing legacy of these colourful times still attracts international visitors to the cobbled streets, the atmospheric pubs and the galleries of this town. New generations of artists are still working and innovating all around the peninsula of St Ives today, including Porthmere Studios, where Ben Nicholson, Terry Frost, Patrick Heron and Peter Lanyon all created their works. Many of them are on display in a newly dedicated space in the transformed Tate St Ives Gallery. I'm Emma Gannon and this has been so much fun doing this guest episode for the Tate's Walks of Art. For more Walks of Art podcasts and to find out about the accompanying book of the same name, visit the Tate website. <laughs>